The Moth is supported by Progressive. Progressive has you covered when it comes to car insurance, starting with built-in savings like discounts for being a safe driver. You can also save when you start your quote online or have multiple vehicles on your policy. In fact, drivers who switch and save with Progressive save over $750 on average. Start a quote online and see all the discounts for yourself. Visit Progressive.com today. National Annual Average Auto Insurance Savings by New Customers Surveyed in 2019. Potential savings will vary. Discounts vary and are not available in all states and situations. And keep listening at the end of the show today for a special bonus story made possible by Progressive. Hey, Moth family. Save the date for the Moth main stage on Saturday, February 27th at 7.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Join us and host Jonathan Ames for an evening of stories as five storytellers take the virtual stage and share a true personal tale from their life. Stories of glory and defeat, taunting fate, laughing in the face of danger, and the moments that forever changed the course. Buy tickets now at themoth.org slash virtual mainstage. From PRX, this is the Moth Radio Hour. I'm Jennifer Hickson. The Moth is true stories, told live, often by people unaccustomed to addressing a room of a few hundred to over a thousand strangers. But when the tellers take the stage and the audience quiets down, nervousness dissipates and the story takes over. In this hour, we'll hear four stories. A man is caught up in the life of a very famous 19th century poet. A woman travels to a spa in New Mexico where clothes are optional. A daughter tries to surprise her mom at the World Trade Center one September morning. And this first story about a ski slope and a superhero. Bobby Stoddard is a carpenter from Vermont. He told this story for us at a show we presented in East Lansing, Michigan, in collaboration with Michigan Public Radio. Here's Bobby, live at the Moth. So I am from Vermont, and I, I love living in Vermont. And in order to love living in Vermont, you, you really need to love winter. I'm, guessing all of you feel the same way about Michigan. <laughs> I love everything about it, you know, the smell of the wood stove, and, but it's really the snow that makes it for me. And my favorite winter in Vermont was 1999. Um, it was a big snow year, and I was a, a part-time carpenter and a full-time ski bum. And the other thing, other than being a big snow year, that made that a really amazing year was um, our local ski mountain, Bolton Valley, went bankrupt. And Bolton Valley is at the top of a steep, windy mountain road, and the only reason you would go up there is to go skiing. And if they're not running the lifts, no one's going up there, uh, except for me and some of my friends, because we like to hike for it. Because if, you're, if you love skiing, you love powder. Powder is the church. And if powder's the church, then the holy grail is fresh tracks. And if you're hiking up a, an abandoned ski mountain, you're gonna get fresh tracks all day. And we did, we got them all winter long, we would hike that mountain. And fresh tracks are when you ski down and nobody has skied in front of you. It's sublime. Uh, so I was up there one Saturday and I was actually just with just my dogs and I was alone. And uh, I hiked the mountain and I got my turns in and I get down to the bottom of the mountain and between the bottom of the chairlift and the parking lot, there is a little gully. And I'm just, I want to maximize my vertical, so I, I just drop down into this gully and I spin around so I'm facing up the mountain just to see how far back my, dog, my dogs were. And I undo my bindings and, and, I, and I look up and I see my dogs over here. And, then, and I see something over here and it's, it's a mother and a father and a little baby boy. And uh, they're about 100 yards up the mountain and they're playing with sleds. And I watch as the father takes this little 18-month-old boy and, and set him in this little red plastic sled face first and slide him just, you know, about seven feet to the mother who bends down. And I still don't know how she does this, but she, she misses him. and He goes right through her legs. And in an instant, this kid is rocketing down the mountain. 
and the dad jumps in his sled and he talks, takes off after him, but he, he's never going to catch him. And this is a ski mountain. This is not a backyard hill. And the kid's flying down the mountain, and as soon as I see him take off, I start running. And I'm running in the direction that he's headed, but as soon as I take that first step, I can no longer see him because I'm down in this gully and I can just barely see them over the lip of snow. And as I'm charging through this gully, it's, it's getting deeper and deeper, and it's starting to approximate more of a ravine. And I run to where I think this kid is headed, and, and I haven't seen him in a while, but I know he's still coming because I can hear his mother shrieking, this primal scream, screaming, Parker, jump out, Parker, Parker. And I look up, and there's a steel pipe sticking out of the ground. It's a snow-making pylon. And now I'm sitting, looking at this pipe, and I'm waiting, and I'm listening to this mother. And then all of a sudden, there he is, this little kid. He's clinging to the front of the sled, his little face. And he shoots off this cornice of snow, and he misses that pipe by just an inch. His sled goes flying, and he does a, he does a flip in the air, and, and I just catch him, like, right out of the air. <laughs> and now, yeah. And now I've got him. And he's in my arms, and I'm looking down at him. He's little, and I'm like, hey, <laughs> that looked fun. How you doing? And he's just owl eyes at me. And then the dad skids to a stop, and the dad is agog because they, the parents never saw me. They didn't see me snowboard down. They didn't see me start to run. He just saw his little guy just... And he's staring at me, and he says, who are you? And I just look up, and I say, I'm, I'm Bobby. And, and he says, well, where did you come from? I say, you know, I was, I was just here. And, and then the mother shows up, and she tumbles down through the snow, and she comes up to me, and, and, I, and I hand her Parker, and, and this woman clearly wants this baby. And she takes the child, and she just crumples. And she's wailing and crying. And of course now Parker's crying, because she's crying. And I'm like, why isn't she soothing the kid? Like, he was fine when I, I gave her a perfectly good baby. And now he's crying. And I really can't even fathom why she's not like, I don't know. So the dad starts talking to me and he says something. He says, Bobby, do you read the Bible? I'm like, no, I don't. <laughs> he says, well, I read the Bible and I don't believe that God does anything without a purpose. And I believe God put you here today to catch my son. You know, and I'm not a big God guy. And, uh, but I don't know, someone says something like that to you, you you know, you take stock. And I start replaying it and sort of the magnitude of it. And then I look up and I look at that steel pipe coming out of the ground and I picture Parker's little face flying by it. And my whole world just goes into slow motion. And all of my senses become amplified. My sense of smell and taste and hearing are just electrified. And I walk up to him and we're talking and I'm listening to oxygen enter his lungs and come out of his lungs. And I am feeling saliva course through my glands and I go to shake his hand and I can, I can feel his fingerprints on my fingerprints. And then I get in my car and I'm driving and I'm watching raindrops explode in slow motion off my windshield and I'm smelling cigarettes in houses that are shut and they're 100 yards away and I'm like, yeah! Yes! This feels right! Like, this is what it feels like when you find what you do. I found what I do. I catch babies. You know, like, this is right. I'm a, I'm a superhero. And I'm on, you know? I, get, I go out to a bar with my friends that night, and I know how many, exactly how many people are in that bar, and who, when they came in, and when they're leaving, and I'm watching subtle nuances and body language around the room. I'm expecting a fight to break out. I'm on. So I wake up in the morning, and I'm still there. And that day, I was flying out to visit my sister in Colorado, and on the way to the airport, I am vigilant. I'm looking for little old ladies in the road, and runaway bikes with kids, and bank robbers. And I get on the airplane, and we're flying, and a little ways into the flight, we encounter some turbulence. 
And it's that turbulence that's like no fun. Your butt is out of your seat and your gut is in your throat and it's relentless and it's not stopping and the pilot's not telling us anything. All he's done is turned on the fastener seatbelt sign and the mood in the cabin is getting grim. People are starting to moan a little. And I'm like, okay, game on. <laughs> like, I'm gonna do something. Like, but I'm not delusional. I don't think I'm gonna stop the plane from crashing, but I'm gonna do something. I'm like, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna say just the right thing. I'm gonna, like, I'm gonna minister. I'm gonna, I'm gonna look someone in the eyes, I'm gonna tell them that they're loved, or I'm gonna hold someone's hand. I'm like, but wait, how am I gonna be calm? Like, I'm crashing too. <laughs> and then it comes to me. I realize, like, I could die today. You know, I've had, a, I've had a great life. I've had varied and diverse lovers. I've had some sublime meals. I watched the sunrise from the top of Temple 4 in Tikal. I, I caught a baby yesterday. You know, like, I'm good. I could go. And, and, it, and it works. I'm calm. I'm, I'm ready. And the flight was fine. Nothing. We made it. It was fine. The turbulence got stopped and we were fine. So, um, the next day at my sister's house, I noticed that all my superpowers had gone away. And, uh, and then it didn't take long for sort of this idea that I was out to save people also kind of went away. But the one thing I kind of kept was this idea that I could, I could die, to, you know, I could die today. I've had like, I've had some great food, I've been to Guatemala. Uh, and it, it kind of actually works for me. It's this little mantra, I pull it out when flights are funky or things are getting sketchy. And, yeah, I just use it when I need it. So a few years ago, uh, my wife gave birth to our daughter, Hazel, and um, a few months after that, I found myself on an airplane headed to California. And a little ways into the flight, we encountered some turbulence, and like, not a lot, like a modicum of turbulence. You know, just enough to make you sort of look up from your book. And so I do, I look up from my book, and I reach for my mantra, and it's gone. And in its place is that feeling you get when you're on a precipice and someone jostles you, you know, and you're like, <gasps> and your life passes in front of your eyes, except that it's not my life. It's my daughter's life, and it's complete, and it's got the highs and the lows and the first and the first time riding a bike and the first time skiing, first time getting on the school bus, and there's grumpy teenage years and, and randy boyfriends that I have to contend with and <laughs> graduations, and I'm like, I can't die right now. And I'm white knuckling it on the airplane. And then it comes to me like I'm not, my life is really not just my life anymore. It, it, it in large part belongs to this little person. Because you know, as soon as you have a kid, you're, you're vulnerable. And they're so vulnerable without you, you need each other. You know, and it feels good. It feels really good. And so now, I'm starting to bliss out on this flight. And as I'm kicking back in my chair and sort of releasing my hands, the image of that mother clinging to her little baby on the side of that snowy mountain comes to me. And I finally get it. It's this primal love that lays dormant in our most primitive self. And when it's triggered and unlocked, it just overwhelms us. And then I was thinking, now I know what my purpose is. Now I know what's right for me. You know, and my tiny little daughter made me feel that way. She still does. Thanks. That was Bobby Stoddard. Bobby is an avid skier and world traveler and dad. Side note, Bobby is a national and world champion ultimate frisbee player, which might explain his excellence in baby catching. To see a picture of Bobby, visit our Radio Extras page at themoth.org. While there, you can share any of the stories you're hearing on this hour with your friends and family. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at The Moth. In a moment, we'll hear about a man who's asked to make Edgar Allan Poe relevant to a melting pot neighborhood in the Bronx. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented 
by PRX. The Moth is supported by Monday.com. Here at The Moth, our podcast team is working on a lot of new and exciting things, and Monday.com is helping us stay organized. Monday.com Work OS is a customizable platform that makes it easy to plan projects, give feedback, and decide next steps all in one place. Whether you're a small operation or a global organization, create the perfect workflow for your team with Monday.com. Work OS. To start your free 14-day trial, go to monday.com. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Jennifer Hickson from the Moth. Our next story comes from a show we did on the island of Nantucket. The theme was Walk the Line. Here's Matt Mercier live at the Moth on Nantucket. So I'm sitting in Dempsey's Pub on the Bowery in New York, drowning my sorrows in a pint of Guinness. I've just lost both my jobs, the rent is due yesterday, I have credit card debt and student loans piled to the ceiling, not one job prospect on the horizon. Until my friend turns to me, he's like, I I might have the solution to your problems. Do you want free rent for the rest of your life in New York? Are you kidding? <laughs> what do I have to do to get that? And he's like, well, you do have to live in the Bronx, way up on the Grand Concourse. And I was like, oh, that's a long 45-minute commute away from anything. I don't know. What else? Well, it's a basement apartment. It doesn't get much light. I was like, all right, I'm paying $1,200 a month for that privilege in Queens. Uh, uh, what else? Well, the big commitment is on the weekends. Um, the house is a historical house, and the apartment is in the basement, The museum is on top, and you give tours on the weekends. You're the caretaker and the docent. That's how you get the free rent. And by this time, he said free rent enough that it's sunk in. I'm like, free rent in New York. This is the unicorn of real estate. Why am I? Yeah, I'll do it. Sign up. I'll I'll do it. He's like, hold on. One more detail. You have to be well-adjusted to live in this house by yourself. Um, Because you see, it once belonged to Edgar Allan Poe. He said, you get it? It's not just any basement, it's Poe's basement. It's, it's melancholy squared. You're, it's really sad. And these facts may have scared away a more um, well-adjusted person, but I am desperate, I'm penniless, and maybe just a teensy bit depressed. So in other words, it's perfect. Like, this is it. I would just sign me up. So he arranges an interview. And I think, like most of us, I hadn't read Poe since high school. I associated him with Vincent Price and apes with razor blades and ravens. And all. So, I, uh, but so I had to bone up. So the week before, uh, I memorized Annabelle Lee. Uh, I try to memorize the bells. That doesn't go so well. I read a biography. It's really depressing and sad and short, violent life. So, um, but I throw myself at the Bronx Historical Society. I say, I, I am Poe's number one fan. As long as I don't have to wear a frock coat and a fake mustache and recite The Raven every weekend, I can do this. This is my destiny. And they say, well, a lot of people feel the same way you do, Matthew. Um, When they hear the words free rent, people get a little crazy, you know. Uh, But we take this very seriously. You need to know your Poe history. And we also need you to sign this contract that says you will not leave after a month. and that you'll stay at least a year. And I thought, leave after a month? Like, why would anyone leave? And I just made an off-color joke. I was like, what, have caretakers gone mad in the Poe house, you know? And they said, no, 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 nothing that bad. (laughs) Nothing that bad. Uh, But we just would like you to consider yourself, you know, people, uh, you know, forget that this job is very hard, and the Bronx would be a very isolating place. So, uh, and, and caretakers, you know, their adjustment has been, we want you to consider yourself an ambassador to the neighborhood, okay? But don't let the neighborhood know you live in the house. Just security purposes, privacy issues, all right. So, okay, I can do that. So a month later, I'm awarded the position of caretaker and head docent, and ambassador to the Bronx, me. It sounded ridiculous. It was ridiculous. And then I took the Ford train up to the northern Bronx, got off at Kingsbridge Road, 
and headed east, and I'm hearing Jamaican accents, Korean accent, Mexican, Bengali, Pakistani, and I, wow, I am the outsider here. Like this, I do have to be an ambassador. How am I going to make a 19th century poet, you know, relative to the 21st century global community? This is a bit much. I get up to the Grand Concourse. It's four lanes of north-south traffic hissing back and forth, and there's the cottage across the street, a little 19th century clapboard farmhouse. It looked like Little House on the Prairie, the urban edition. It just was like, <laughs> did not belong there. And uh, so I was like, all right, I'm into this. So I crossed the street, and there's a young man on the corner with a very pronounced limp, uh, and he zeroes right in on me. He's like, what's up, man? What do you need? No, I'm good. Thank you. I walk on by, and I realize, oh, that must be the local heroin dealer. I move into the basement. Sure enough, it's only got one window. It looks right out on this corner. I can see this guy doing his thing. And I ran into him every morning um, because Poe did not pay. I had to get another job downtown. So I had to get up early at the crack of dawn for the commute. And I'd walk out to the gate. The property was encircled. It was in a little city park, and it was encircled by a, a locked gate. I called it the gated community of one. <laughs> and I'd go out the gate, walk up the corner, and I'd see this guy every morning. Every morning, he'd say the same thing. What's up, man? What do you need? I'm, like, I'm good. Thanks. And we did this about four or five times before he got the hint. But there's still this tension between the two of us every morning. Because from his vantage point, he could you know, tell where most people were coming from in the neighborhood. But for the life of him, I know he can never figure out where the hell I'm coming from. Because the cottage is right there in the middle of nothing, and I would just pop out and go, boo! <laughs> Here I am, a little drug-free ghost just floating on by. <laughs> and we'd look at each other mutually. I know he thought I was a narc, or he's just thinking, if this kid's not here at 5 a.m. to buy drugs, what is he doing here? He does not belong, and I didn't belong. It was so hard to become a part of that neighborhood. And then I started my job as docent at the house, and that is even harder. Uh, I started in, in the middle of winter, and the only people that come to the Northern Bronx in the winter to see Poe's house are the hardcore Poe fanatics. <laughs> Scholars, historians, PhDs, and actors who are portraying Poe, and I am getting drilled. And some of them have been there before, they're like, oh, so you're the new guy, huh? What can you tell me about the Griswold scandal and its effect on Poe's reputation? And I'm like, oh, you know, did you write the pit and the pendulum here? No, Philadelphia, you're wrong. So it just, it, and I was mixing up my dates, and I'm left and right, and sometimes if I didn't know the answer, I would just make stuff up, you know? Did Poe smoke opium? Yeah, sure, of course he did. That sounds great. Yeah, so, and I'd get a call from the historical society. Matt, just stick to the facts, all right? And, uh, and be diplomatic. And I, but it was particularly hard to be diplomatic with one breed of visitor that showed up at my door occasionally. And one such gentleman shows up on a Sunday afternoon uh, in the winter. Uh, he's got a little pot belly and a, a beard and glasses. And halfway through my spiel, he says, let me just stop you. Let me just stop you. Let me ask you something. Do you really consider Poe to be a major American poet? And nobody had ever asked my personal opinion. You know, I'd just been regurgitating facts. So I said, yes. Yes, I do. And he's like, well, it's unfortunate that you feel that way because I consider him second-rate personally, and, but I understand why you have to say that, because you're working here, uh, you have to defend him, he's your author. I understand that, because I look after Historical House, too. I was like, oh, you do? Yeah. In fact, it's an author's house. I was like, oh, pray tell, who is your author? Oh, you might have heard of him, goes by the name of Walt Whitman. <laughs> yes, uh, now, historically, keep in mind, Whitman did not like Poe's poetry. He thought it was a little too dark for America. So here it is, the rivalry, the modern incarnation. And by this time, I have gone completely native. My hair is out like this. I got mutton chop sideburns. I'm drinking a lot. I'm angry, and I'm lashing out at my critics. I am Poe. And I'm like, second rate, huh? You know. I've always felt Walt Whitman was a pretentious gas bag. <laughs> you think the guy never heard of a period, free verse? Oh, you know? 
I don't really feel this way, but I am not myself anymore. I am possessed, and it works. He's like, you can't say that about Whitman. I was like, well, welcome to the Bronx, pal. You know, that's how we do things here. And I would, this conversation would happen. I'd get into arguments with rival caretakers from other literary homesteads. It exists, and I would get angry. I'd stew about it. I would like, why does the Washington Irving House and Sleepy Hollow get all the nonprofit funding? Because they got some headless horsemen. Oh, Philistines, you know, I'm just like, and I, you know, I'm becoming more passionate, but also slightly more unhinged. And I'm getting buried alive every other weekend by snowstorms, which cover up that one window, leaving me with no natural light. And by the time springtime arrives, I am pale and hairy. I'm like a, a hibernating grizzly bear, like coming out of my den. I'm hungry, I'm angry, and I want human connection. And, and with spring come the buds, you know, the trees, and, but also the local people start coming through the park. They walk through the park and they see me sitting on the porch. I'm like, all right, ambassador, I could do this, right? And they come by, oh, we didn't know this was a museum. And they walk right up, and, but their number one question is, do you have a bathroom? <laughs> yes, I do, but I can't tell you that, that I have. No, I don't, I don't have one. Uh, and I'm sitting out on the porch one afternoon thinking, how am I gonna pull off this ambassador role to this neighborhood, which I don't belong? And I'm sitting out there, and a gentleman, it's late in the day on a Sunday, about to close up, and a gentleman comes through the walk uh, gate, and I notice he's a very pronounced limp. And it's the dealer. I know it is. From back in January. And this time he doesn't ask me, what do I need? He's like, can I get a tour? I was like, yeah, come on in. So he comes into the parlor, just the two of us now. And I am t my insides are tightly like a bedspring. I am so, because he's got a little smirk on his face. And he's looking at me. And everything he asks me is no different than when anyone else has ever asked me. But <laughs> coming from him, it's completely loaded. He says, yeah, I didn't, I walk past this house every day. I didn't know it was a museum. Yeah. Well, look at all this furniture. It looks pretty old. Is it worth anything? <laughs> no, no, nothing. It's worth. Well, what did Poe write here? Oh, Cask of Amontillado. Oh, that's the one about murder, right? I was like, they're all about murder, aren't they? <laughs> I love stories about murder. Well, so do I. Yeah, who doesn't, right? So... And then he closes his eyes and puts two fingers up to his temples and gets really quiet, just like this. And he sways back and forth for a full minute. And I, I don't know what's going on. You know, what's... And then he opens his eyes, takes those fingers off his head and points right at me. And he says, once upon a midnight dreary, as I pondered, weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, as I nodded, gently napping, suddenly there came a rapping, rapping, and I stand there aghast and listen to the whole first half of The Raven. Not the whole poem, but the whole first half, which is pretty, and he gets to the first nevermore, and it kind of peters out. But I certainly did not, I did not expect this, and my jaw, I'm just like, I was like, that's impressive. That's fantastic. And he's like, yeah, thanks. I had to memorize that in high school. I hate that poem. <laughs> so much. And that just broke everything up. We just, like everything, we just talked about Vincent Price and horror movies. And he's giving me suggestions. He's like, well, if you like working here, you should go to Woodlawn Cemetery. Miles Davis is buried up there and all this other stuff. And we're just, and he's, and we're going back and forth. It's a 20 minute conversation and it's, and it's great. And then I walk him out to the porch, shakes my hand. He has a little smirk on his face, and he's like, you're doing a pretty good job here. Keep up the good work. By the way, I just got one more question for you. Do you live here? You live in this house? And I really, I really wanted to say yes, because we'd had such an honest discussion. But of course I say no. And he says, well, it's been too bad. It'd be pretty cool to live in this house. And I can tell from the way he says that that I am not fooling him one bit. Like, he knows exactly. But there now seems to be this implicit understanding. Like, I won't tell anyone that you live here by yourself. You don't tell anyone what I do on the corner. Or that I have 19th century poetry memorized. <laughs> so we leave it at that, he walks off. And of course, in that moment, we'd flip roles. He's the ambassador, I'm the tourist. 
and I have just been officially welcomed to the Bronx. Thank you. That was Matt Mercier. Matt is a writer, storyteller, and adjunct professor in New York City. These days, he's working on a non-historical novel about Poe's cottage in the Bronx. He's thinking of calling it Poe's Basement. To see a picture of Matt during the time he worked at the Poe House, visit themoth.org. Next, we're going to hear a story from one of our story slams in St. Paul, where we partner with Minnesota Public Radio. At Story Slams, tellers interpret the theme of the evening with a true story from their lives, and judges from the audience choose a winner. The theme for this Story Slam was Fish Out of Water. Here's Jennifer Cohnhorst live at the Moth. Okay, it's bright. So, about two years ago, I took a little mini vacation to Santa Fe, New Mexico. And everybody that I told that I was going there had one piece of advice, and that was, you've got to go to this place, 10,000 Waves. It's this beautiful spa, it's a Japanese spa, and it's, it's lovely, and you'll love it. So after my first day of sightseeing, it's a beautiful place, you know, adobe buildings, blue skies, um, I thought, I'll go there. So I go back to my room, and I look up on the internet, because I'm like, I don't know what to bring to a spa, because I'm not a spa person, because I'm staying at a hostel that costs 20 bucks a night, if that gives you an idea. <laughs> And it's like, you know, everything you need is provided, towels, you know, robes, slippers, and clothing is optional. And I'm like, it's an option. It's an option to not wear clothes. Um, it's not an option that I'd considered. And so I considered it. And I considered it all the way there. And while I was checking in, I'm like, I don't know, it's kind of weird, it's naked. And I decided, you know, in the locker room, leave the bathing suit in the locker and I'll, I'll do this. Because like, why not? I'm never gonna see these people again. It's, a, it's you know, it's a chance to try something new. So I, you know, put on my little robe and slippers and I go up and it's a little dark pathway lit by Japanese lanterns. It is, you know, to its credit, very beautiful place. And I get to the area where the hot tub and sauna are and it's a, you pay like a day rate to go there. And it's evening and it's dark and I get to the area and I'm like, why was I worried? I can hardly see my feet. And I sort of like feel my way to the hot tub and slip in and there's like three 60 year old guys in the hot tub and I'm like, I don't care about you, and I don't think you care about me. And so this is no big deal. And I look up, and the Milky Way is just like stretched out in a clearing in the trees. And I'm like, why would you even look at anything else but that? It's gorgeous. So um, I sit in the hot tub. I go in the cold plunge. I go in the sauna. I take a cold shower. And I just, I'm blissed out. I just love it. I fall in love with the experience uh, so much that I want to go back the next day. But I want to go back during the daytime because I want to spend more time. And I'm going to go to the all-women's uh, area because I'm naked and it's daytime. And so I just really kind of want to be around women. So I go through the whole ritual, you know, robes, slippers, and I walk up this winding path to the, the area. And I go through the gate. And when I walk through, I remember thinking, I need to sear this image into my brain so that I can tell my straight male friends about it. <laughs> because there are like 12 nude and semi-nude women, and they are like the goddesses of Santa Fe. They are long and lithe and tan and muscular. And they have the kind of body that requires like decades of good genes and millions of dollars. <laughs> and this is probably a good time for me to talk a little bit about my body, by contrast. <laughs> I'm a corn-fed Midwestern girl. I'm five feet tall. And um, I'm 41. And I've had two children. And there has not been a lot of course correction throughout the last decades. <laughs> You know, I'm fat, and I'm fat not like Dove Beauty ad fat. I'm fat like rolls and dimples and, you know, things. And these women, I'm sure, are like, they think back fat is a myth. But I'm, you know, here I am. So, but I'm not easily daunted. So I'm like, you know, robe off, I go into the hot tub. And I settle into the experience. And this really beautiful woman comes out. She's fair-skinned, red hair. And she walks out, and she's really tentative and really shy. And I look at her, and I recognize something, because I know it in myself. She hates her body. And I'm looking at her, and I have no idea why, because she is beautiful. And, but I know. I'm like, there's something she's ashamed of, she hates, and, uh, and it makes me really sad. So I get up, and I go into the sauna, and I lay down on the wood slats. And if you've ever taken a sauna, you know you kind of release tension by degrees, and you can kind of feel it kind of coming out of your body. And with every breath, I just started to think about all of the things that my body had done for me over the years. You know, I had 
built two beautiful children in my body. I had birthed two children without drugs, one of them 10.4 pounds. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, that's that. That's my body. And, you know, <laughs> I had, you know, I had eaten all this delicious food with my body. I'd walked in foreign countries with my body. I had had really exceptional sexual experiences with my body, and I, I had gotten a lot of pleasure from my body. I had also treated my body not with the most respect. I had really pushed the envelope in drug and alcohol abuse. I smoke cigarettes, I don't exercise, and in return, my body continues to perform with some regularity. And that's pretty amazing to me. And in return for that kindness, I hate my body. I just loathe it. And I loathe it because the way that I feel on the inside is such a vast difference from the way I look on the outside. And I don't know how to bridge that difference. And so I sit, and with every breath, I just try to release this feeling. And I get up, and I walk out uh, to the deck area. And it's like 40 degrees. It's December. So I'm hot, and the steam like rising off my body, which is cool. And the wind is blowing and blowing through my pubic hair, which is a thing. Really, it happens. And I'm like out there naked in the world, in nature. And I have this thought. It's like, I don't have a body. I am a body. And when I hate my body, I hate all of the things that make me who I am. And a goddess of Santa Fe doesn't have time for that. Thank you. Jennifer Kohnhorst is a mother, writer, ad maven, and her words, low rent, bon vivant. We asked her for a photo from the trip, but she said, for obvious reasons, cameras were not allowed. When we come back, what it was like to show up for work at the World Trade Center on September 11th. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by the Public Radio Exchange, prx.org. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Jennifer Hickson from The Moth. The Moth's community program sometimes works with nonprofits in New York, and we're very proud of our relationship with the 9-11 Tribute Center, where we met our next storyteller, Erlene Alexander. Here's Erlene live at The Moth. So my mom, my mom and I, we were very close. We were so close that we would have dinner together almost every night. Even after I moved out, someone had to feed me. (laughs) And we talk every day, and we'd always, in our conversation, have something to laugh about. And that laugh would get us through the day, or sometimes through the week. We even worked for the same company at the World Trade Center. She worked in engineering on a 72nd floor, and I worked in aviation. So she got to work really early, though, 7.30. Me and the rest of the world, we got to work at about 9.30, 9 10. <laughs> but on this beautiful day in September, I remember it being the loveliest day. I had to be at work early. So since I had to be at work early, I said, I'm going to surprise my mom, and I'm going to show up at her desk with a cup of coffee, light and sweet like she likes it, and I'm going to say, well, who has banker's hours now? And I say that because I recall that she used to always tease me about having banker's hours. She's like, you know, you just cannot get to work before 10, can you? Well, today I am. So. I make my way to the World Trade Center. I get to the concourse where all the stores are. And I look and I just wonder, like, who are all these people up so early? (laughs) The concourse is full of people and the coffee line is so much longer than I usually have it. But I stand in line, I get the coffee, because I I am determined to surprise my mom on this day. So I make my way to the 44th floor, 
because at the 44th floor, you had to change over to the next set of elevators. So I'm headed to the next set of elevators to get to my mom's floor. And I see in one of the elevators my work mom, Margaret, and I see that she's talking to our friend Dan, who's the secretary of our company. So they're talking and laughing, and I'm like, what are they talking about? I want, I want to know. So I try to catch up to them, and just as I get to the elevator, it closes in my face. They couldn't have seen me, because if they did, they would have held the elevator. And then I would have been laughing too. So as I'm waiting for the next elevator, all of a sudden the building shook violently and it leaned to the side and bounced back. What was that? What is going on around me? Glass is cracking and shattering and people are just moving so fast. I don't know what's going on, but I hear a voice coming from the stairwell. Let's get out of here. Let's get off this floor. We have to go. So we go into the stairwell, and it's calm, it's quiet. It's almost like one of our periodical fire drills, evacuation drills. The only thing you could hear in the stairwell were people walking down the stairs. Um, we still didn't really know what was going on. I was just hoping that the elevators were working when we had to come back in. So. We get down to the concourse, and we open the door to the concourse, and there's nothing but flashing strobe lights and alarms going off and a police officer pushing us out of the, out of the office building. Get out of this office building. Get out quickly. So I step out of the office building, and there's paper coming from the sky. I step out a little further. And I look back up at the building, and there's a cloud of smoke coming from one of the floors. That's a really bad office fire. I wonder how that happened. And then all of a sudden, I feel myself being pushed again, pushed across the street, get away from the building. So I go to the corner directly across the street from the building. And then I notice. I still have my mom's coffee. I still have a chance to give my mom her coffee as soon as she comes out of this building. So I'm waiting and I'm looking at each and every face coming out of that building. I didn't see my mom. Two of my coworkers come up to me and they say, well, we have to leave this area. And I say, yeah, I'll, I'll leave as soon as my mom comes and then we can all walk together. Wait with me. So they indulge me for a minute, and then they convince me that I have to leave. And so we're walking, and then I, I don't know how it slipped my mind that I'm still holding coffee. My hand has a tight grip on this coffee because in my mind, I'm still looking for my mom because I need to get her this coffee. And I'm looking at every face going by me. I'm looking at every face in every crowd. And I still don't see my mom. So then a man comes and runs by us. Take cover, the building's about to fall. So we go into a store. And as soon as we walk in the store and I look out the window, all of a sudden like a nuclear explosion, dust and smoke just like takes over the whole area. I can no longer see the buildings. I can no longer see the people. So when the dust cleared, I was really concerned because my mom had asthma really bad. And all this smoke and dust going on, I just wanted to find her. Well, my cell phone wasn't working. No one's cell phone was working, so I couldn't call her. So we went to find a payphone. Every payphone had like 10,000 people online. 
And so finally, I'm going to sit at this payphone and wait online with everyone else. So I get to the phone. I call my mom's house to see if anyone there has heard from her. No answer. I call my grandmother's house to see if anyone's heard from her on that side. I talk to my aunt. They're so happy to hear from me. And I'm, and I'm just kind of like, yeah, that's good. But have you talked to my mom? And they were like, no, we were hoping that she would be with you. So I hang up and I keep walking. At this point, I'm walking towards the Penn Station area, the PATH train. So I get to the PATH station. And as they were telling me what, were, what was going on, I was still like, I couldn't believe it. That really happened? So I'm on the first train back to New Jersey. We come out of the tunnel, and it's hard to believe how such a beautiful morning, a beautiful morning, produced such a dark night. So I get to my mom's house, and I notice that it's even darker. And I notice it because the porch light isn't on. The porch light is always on at my mom's house. What is going on? So I ring the bell, and my dad answers the door. And he has tears in his eyes. And he gives me the biggest, tightest hug ever. And he's so glad to see me. <laughs> and I'm so glad to be home and see him. But I need to know, did you see my mom? Is my mom home? Did you hear from her? So he backs up and he says, just come inside. My heart went to my stomach, but I followed him inside. And I looked in the living room and my mom was there. <laughs> And we hugged each other so tight, and all of our emotions came out. And I just realized at that moment, I was really scared that I had lost her. And then I also thought, as I stepped back, how'd you get home before me? <laughs> <laughs> but that day, I mean, I was like the luckiest person in the world. So many people were lost, mothers, daughters. My work mom, Margaret, and my friend, Dan, they never made it out that elevator. But I missed that. I don't know why I missed the elevator. But I am very happy and very glad that I still get to talk with my mom every day. I still get to go to dinner. <laughs> And I still get to get her a cup of coffee, light and sweet, whenever I want. Thank you. That was Erlene Alexander. Erlene works at the Aviation Department at the Port Authority of New York in New Jersey. Through work, she spends a lot of time at the Newark Airport, where they have a 9-11 memorial. She says every time she sees it, her eyes go immediately to the names of her friends from the elevator, Margaret and Dan. She also keeps a photo of them as her screensaver. Erlene's mother, who still lives in nearby New Jersey, was in the audience the night Erlene told her story, which is significant because it was the first time she'd stepped foot back in New York City since the day of the attacks, nearly 12 years earlier. Her mom loved hearing the story, but hasn't been back since. To see a picture of Erlene and her mother, or to get a link to the 9-11 Tribute Center, visit the Radio Extras page at themoth.org. If any of the stories you hear today inspire you to share one of your own, please pitch us. The number to call is 877-799-MOTH, or you can do it right on our website, themoth.org. 
We're also on Facebook and Twitter at The Moth. That's it for The Moth Radio Hour. We hope you'll join us next time. host this hour was The Moth senior producer, Jennifer Hickson. Jennifer also directed the stories in the show, along with Bonnie Levison. The rest of The Moth's directorial staff includes Catherine Burns, Sarah Haberman, Sarah Austin Jeunesse, and Meg Bowles. Production support from Whitney Jones. Moth stories are true, as remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. Moth events are recorded by Argo Studios in New York City, supervised by Paul Ruest. Our theme music is by The Drift. Other music in this hour from Tin Hat Trio, Dave Matthews, Freddie Price, and Lawless Music. You can find links to all the music we use at our website. The Moth is produced for radio by me, Jay Allison, at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, with help from Vicki Merrick. This hour was produced with funds from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. Moth Radio Hour is presented by the public radio exchange, prx.org. For more about our podcast, for information on pitching your own story, and for everything else, go to our website, themoth.org. Moth Story Slams are back. Held on Mondays beginning in February, join us for our weekly open mic story slam competition. February's theme is Love Hurts. Throw your name in the hat for a chance to tell your story or just come to listen to stories of a total eclipse of the heart, kicked to the curb by the people or places or things you love or used to love. Visit themoth.org slash events to buy tickets now. That's themoth.org slash events.